I am John. I am Ed. And this is PAX, a history podcast by Empire. Fantastic. Yeah, and for the first time we are in the same room. Recording. I can I can touch your face. I'd rather you didn't. Ooh. Oh, I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> they don't understand. It's, it's a different medium. It's an audio format. They can't tell. Yes. <laughs> viewers, who, viewers in the north may be experiencing some technical difficulties. Oh, viewers, yeah, listeners everywhere, listeners everywhere. So yeah, um, we've come together after you. You're back from Rome. I am indeed you back. Had from good Rome. time in Rome. Yes, as you can all see, I'm well tanned. He's come back. He looks positively Italian. Yeah. I'm such a not pale person. Molto bene. Molto bene. But what were you looking at in Rome? What were you? Because you were there with looking... the British. British school at Rome. Yeah. I was doing the postgraduate course there. It was um, a lot of fun. Met some really cool people. Uh, and then my, my project was about freedmen, about uh, people who have manumitted from slavery and how they chose to uh, depict themselves and their and their jobs on their tombs. Yeah, and I mean, that sort of brings us on to our, our topic of the week and maybe the next couple of, couple of episodes. Yeah, we're going to try and do... We're going to try and be comprehensive. We're going to comprehensively talk about the big big slavery, the guess. The big S word. The, the, the one that almost all empires are tied to, I think. Yes. Whether they like it or not. Maybe, I don't know about the 20th century so much. It depends on your definitions of slavery, of course. Yeah. You know, it's worth bearing in mind that slavery is legal under the US Constitution as long as you're a prisoner. Oh, that's, that's of course, is correct. Yeah. When the Soviet Union, you know, you're in a gulag. I mean, are you a slave? Are you a prisoner? It's not great either way. I don't know. I'm not thinking about it. I'm bashing some rocks. Yeah. But we're going to, yeah, so we're going to try and talk about various different aspects of slavery. Maybe we'll, I think we're going to try and get some people to know a bit more about it. Yes. But we're going to start. We're doing it chronologically. Yeah, which is the best way to do anything. Yeah. Do the table setting. So and we'd... then we can do some, like, comparative thinking. Yes. So we're going to start with the ancient world, which is your area of expertise. So I'm in the back seat of uh, today, a question asker. Question master. So I'm going to start because when people talk about slavery a lot in public discourse now, which focuses a lot on reparations and the black diaspora relationship, there's always the, oh, what about slavery in X? What about slavery in Y? What about ancient Rome? And mm. the ancient world where slavery was a norm. So what is slavery actually like in the ancient world? Well, it's, I think it's pretty um, horrendous. I think it's it's not something you want to be in. Uh, there is a lot of, despite how prevalent it was, it was certainly, I'd say, probably one of the most prevalent forms or eras of, of slavery. Uh, everyone, or nearly everyone, practiced slavery. Uh, and there were very few sort of moral uh, quandaries or, or arguments about uh, whether or not this was a right or a or a good thing to be doing to other other people, yeah, I think it it speaks a lot to the way people thought about slavery and that and obviously there's an elite bias to all of our evidence, uh, but within this elite sort of uh, corpus of of uh, of written work, there are very very few, if if any at all, references to sort of someone stopping and thinking, oh maybe we shouldn't perform slavery or maybe this is wrong or maybe in some sort of Lockean John Locke fashion it's trying to say actually everyone's equal and no one is inherently uh, inferior and worthy of being enslaved 
you know that there, there, there are some people that tried to talk about like um sort of justifying it in a in a philosophical way so i think aristotle is probably the most famous example of that and obviously aristotle gets um co-opted by much later slaving societies uh to try to justify you know their regimes but it's a so it's a social political norm that nobody questions aristotle's not justifying slavery because somebody's asked him to mm. justify an evil he's justifying slavery as a philosophic point to make yes so and he's and he's doing it in terms of sort of greeks and barbarians yeah and he talks about how barbarians are, you know have some inherent quality to them uh that makes them different from uh, from greeks and therefore that they are sort of naturally inclined towards um, slavery in a way that Greeks uh, aren't. And these arguments get co-opted in the, in yeah, the South. Absolutely. So I think it's, um, I think Thomas Dew is writing sort of antebellum southerner. And when uh, he's got a very interesting interpretation of this, where he basically says that when he says Greeks, what he means is all of us Northern Europeans as well. That's what he means. And when he says barbarians, he means all those people who live, uh, sort of in Asia and uh, even Africa. though when Aristotle's talking about barbarians, he's talking about people who are to the his physical north. He's talking about Dacians and oh, he's talking about Persians specifically. Yeah. So he's he's uh, it's sort of east, uh, but you can't go east because obviously there are Greeks on the uh, on the coast of Turkey as well. So he's uh, he doesn't mean them, and uh, it, obviously it's a very weak argument. But you can see the uh, the appeal that Aristotle has. You know this ancient um, philosophical figure to uh, sort of people who like to justify slavery. Yeah, I think there's a certain element to which the tri- when they begin to need to justify and defend the triangle trade, it's justified based on the Renaissance principle that if Rome did it, it was best. Yes, so that's another really important yeah. thing. Even though, you know, I, I'm not sure the existence of a African slave in the Caribbean or southern the Southern Americas is comparable with that of a Roman slave in the sense of your relationship with power, the nature of your social death. I mean, as a scholar of the triangle trade, there is the concept of social death, where the the vital part of the slave trade is to eradicate your pre-existing culture, wipe you clean, and turn you into nothing more than a commodity for labour. Do the Romans do that? Well, there there is some... There is there is some social death, yeah. Because a, a lot of the names that slaves have are not their original given names. They are yeah. they take on new names, and some studies have been um, conducted on sort of epigraphy and stuff. And about sixty percent of all extant slave names that we have are of Greek origin. Now we know that it cannot be true that sixty percent of all slaves in the Roman Empire were Greeks. Yeah. So people chose Greek names, uh, Greek names, which like uh, like Alexander, people love Alexander because of Alexander the Great, uh, Philostratus, a philosopher, and uh, Eutychus, which means sort of lucky. People took on these um, Greek names because the Latin culture and the Roman culture really liked Greece. Yeah. And people wanted Greek uh, tutors as slaves to teach their children because they thought, oh, Greeks are very well learned. We'll get some Greek slaves. Fantastic. Mm. And so there is an element where slave traders will give these people Greek names to, to sort of meet that demand. But in, in the process, obviously, you're taking away that enslaved person's original name and their original culture. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and obviously by moving them uh, from one place to another, you're sort of extracting them from from their known context and throwing them into a brand new one uh, where they have no connections and uh, are sort of at the mercy of the uh, the system that they've been thrown into. So the social death still exists as a concept. Yes. Okay. And it, it, it's I think it's really pronounced when they if they get freed because when they are freed they don't then take on their old name that they had when they were first enslaved they're given a new name so they basically get the uh their whatever their name is when they're enslaved let's say sort of philostratus yeah so if they are if their enslaver is a guy called um you know gaius julius caesar their slave's name when he is freed will become gaius julius philostratus so he takes on the uh the prynomen and the family name of his enslaver and essentially become sort of like a, a vague family member mm. and they don't get to sort of regain any of what's been lost they are yeah. again thrown into a new context what is interesting of course is you see trappings of that in the triangle train in the sense that everyone loves to give slaves roman names they love to call things like pompey or mm. cicero or julius or you know they they like to give them these or Sulla or something they give them big roman powerful names mm. And then often the same thing with freedom. Often you take your master's surname if you don't can't remember, if you don't have one of your own. But the other thing, is, of course, what strikes me is that 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 whole you are part of the family. You are a family. No, that is not. Uh, this thing is that even with manumission, you are not considered mm. family. And I think a part of that is probably the racial aspect of the plot triangle trade, which I think is the crucial one. But you know, it comes back to the other thing is that. The Romans gather slaves from specific parts. There are specific parts of what they go for certain slaves, yes. Yeah. It's sort of, it's dictated by um, a few different things. So a a lot of, like, a lot of the slaves for the, in say, sort of from the 3rd century to the 1st century BC were captured in war. And so the geographical origins of these slaves is going to be determined primarily by where the Roman army is marching. So, for instance, I, I think it's Plutarch that says that when Caesar went to Gaul, he took a million slaves and, and he slew a million Gauls and took another million into slavery, something like that. Mm. Or when they uh, so-called sort of liberated the Greeks from the, the Macedonians and the um, and the Antigonids, they, again, sort of were taking lots of Greek slaves as well as lots of Greek statues uh, in, in the process. And again, you know, when they... Conquer Egypt, lots of Egyptian slaves. When Pompey makes his big long march um, around the eastern Mediterranean, and eventually, I think, uh, or someone else restores uh, one of the Ptolemy kings to his throne. You know, they're taking slaves the entire time. So, war and uh, a sort of war booty is the primary way in which slaves are are, are being taken, and and you'll have slave traders that follow the army around. To basically facilitate the transport of these uh, enslaved people from wherever it is they live to um, either the metropole, so to Rome, or to very uh, designated slave markets. So the most famous slave market is the one on uh, the island of Delos, which is in the Aegean uh, Sea. And Delos is important for lots of uh, lots of different reasons. You know, it's the, I think it's the birthplace of Apollo in Greek uh, Greek myth, and there's lots of uh, wonderful remains remaining there of uh, Greek temples and, and lion statues and things like that. Yeah. But it was also uh, essentially one of the biggest slave markets in, in the Mediterranean. Also piracy. 
the the Cilician pirates, who Cilicia is sort of south southern Turkey, mm. they would operate in the Mediterranean, take lots of slaves, take them uh, back to Delos, and then sell them essentially. And then d- from Delos, they would be distributed. So there is a there. there is a constant insertion of more slaves into the market. What is strikes me is that this is still very different to enlightenment slavery in the sense that slave trading seems very opportunistic yeah you're following the army around you are seizing you're pirating you know it's, it's seasonal it's based on military campaigning and military conquest and the success of those military actions yes in and it's not a constant effort of say you pick a place you go there you get slaves off of local intermediaries you take the slaves somewhere else that's yeah. not doesn't seem very common it's not. It's it's definitely not the biggest source. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that just sort of trading for slaves in general is is it's very hard to pin down basically in the Roman world because obviously slaves are evidentially they're very ephemeral. They're people, so they don't leave a trace, and also they're they're slaves. So they don't write a will. They don't record where they've come from and where they've been to, uh, and things like that. So it's very hard to reconstruct. A sort of a, a slave trade that way in a way that's not connected to something that people want to write about like military campaigns or about piracy yeah but i will say that despite obviously we can't reconstruct a lot about the slave trade uh but we can sort of there are a few inferences we can make so there are two um tax codes that we know of one from north africa and one from palmyra sort of in uh i think it's syria, syria. Yeah. and these are taxes on goods being moved through palmyra so these are things coming from outside of the roman empire into the roman empire yeah and it's a big public list of things that are being taxed and at the top of that list are slaves okay so what that if you were if you if you viewed the list as a sort of a a guide to importation a guide you know. to how how often do you look at the list determines like what, what you what you what you search the list for the most often it's much easier if you put that at the top yeah so if you go by that logic then slaves are obviously coming through palmyra enough times to warrant slavery being at the top of that list and being the most visible mm. public bit of public record that that you can reference and then similarly, there's a, uh, I think it's a Zachariah or Zarai um, tax codes uh, from North Africa. And similarly, I think slavery is either at the top or very near the top of those. And so w- what you see is that at these sort of points of entries into the Roman Empire over land that we know, because if you go by sea, then you're going to end up in, in a very different place. That's enough slaves are being moved through here to warrant both the taxation of these slaves yeah, if you're taxing them, that is sort of a, implies that it's sort of a very um, regular. Yeah, sort of inelastic. It's not going to res- you're not going to completely cut the supply by taxing it, which sort of implies that there's a lot moving through and there's a very high demand for slaves. Mm-hmm. And then also, it sort of explains a lot of the uh, these sort of middle kingdoms that emerge. Middle kingdoms, sort of like. Um, like sort of Armenia, the kingdom. Yeah, there's an ancient kingdom of Armenia. Oh, the client kingdoms on the edge of Roman. Sphere. Yes, and also ones that aren't client kingdoms. There's the Garamantes, um, which are sort of I think it's like a Saharan kingdom. Yeah, and it's basically thrives as a, a trading middleman between Sub-Saharan Africa and the Roman Empire. Yeah, and so 
lots of some works been done on it, and a lot of it is sort of it takes comparative evidence, like um, slave drivings by I think Italians from um, sub-Saharan Africa, basically employing these locals to guide these columns of slaves through the Sahara Desert from waterhole to waterhole to get them all to, the way from like modern day Nigeria and up to Libya and things like that. Jesus. So there is a precedent for using local intermediaries to facilitate the trade in slaves um, from one place uh, to another like that. Yeah, and but that's, I mean, even then, that's less of a, that's less a specificity to slave trading, more part of trade. Yes. You know, they'd, they'd be using the same intermediaries to move gold if they were moving Yeah. Gold. So yeah, no, slaves aren't the only thing on these tax codes. But they're at the top, which yes. really, really means... That they're being, especially moving through Sub-Saharan Africa and across the Mesopotamian desert. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So, so there is like a, a slave trade going on, but because of problems with evidence, that's basically it. That's as much as we can say. So, how much, how indicative is that and other source material on the size of the slave trade and the size of scale of manpower being moved? Is is that just conjecture? That's going to be conjecture because we can't we can't trace numbers we can say that you know it has to be a significant number of people but that's also a fun way of saying i don't know yeah i mean this is the interesting point of course which is that we can put an more or less put a very make a very good estimate based on numbers on how many people a triangle trade moved yeah and it's i think it's about 12 million 12 to 16 million people wowzers it's incredible that's a lot of people it's a lot but and because we can say there's 12 16, it, you're like that's an immense amount of people. You can mm. pick. You can't pick them, but you understand that that's a lot of people. That's yeah. that's London and its environment being moved and ruptured and yeah. worked to death. And it's a lot of human catastrophe. Yes, but because we can't put a number on Roman slavery, and because it is part of a society that is a world where slavery is the the social norm, mm. and we're talking about. 700 years where presumably practices in slavery and practices of slave entry and practices of manumission and the relationship between slavery and the enslaved slavers and the enslaved changes mm. you know you said that um a key way slaves enter the empire between the third century and the first century bc is through conquest yep what about during the imperial period so we do get more conquests um but but it is it is different. Shout out to us getting invaded. Go Britain. Yeah, Claudius goes to Britain. There are lots of uh, lots of wars against Germany. There's Macromanic wars. There's wars in Dacia. There's I mean the mo- one of the most common uh, motifs when I was in Rome, where they have these big statues of um, taken from sort of triumphal arches and things. You have uh, what's called a trophy, which is like um, it looks a bit like a like a cross, like mm. it's two wooden. Uh, things and then it's got a little breastplate on it and uh, some sort of para- paraphernalia to show off that you've uh, won. But then you also get these statues of Dacians, basically with their hands bound and their their heads down, because they've been defeated and and taken as slaves. So there is a lot of evidence that, but the the scale of movement of people does decline. I think it's very hard to argue that. The wars that happened during the Principate and the Imperial period produced the same number of slaves as the very expansionist wars in the Republican period. But and the thing is, is that the Republican system incentivized people to go out and take slaves. 
in a way that the imperial period didn't. Because the republican system, you didn't have a lot of time to be in power. You didn't have a lot of time, and you a lot. It's very common for people to enrich themselves while they were, yeah, in office. Uh, and what they do is they sort of steal all this wealth, enslave all these people, bring them back to Italy, and then the general idea is that in the absence of things like a bank, how do you invest? land your wealth you invest it in land so you buy a, a farm and estate and you fill it with those slaves you took and uh that's it's called sort of latifundia which is the sort of the sort of estateification of italy and it's a it's an important trend in uh, people who write about the period especially ancient authors who write about the late republic like arian so arian writes about the late republic and he talks about um he talks about basically people being turfed out of their tenant farming positions, mm-hmm. going into the cities, uh, and then causing social um, unrest. And then yeah. you get the Gracchi brothers to try to sort the social unrest, and it all goes. Obviously, Daisy, they get all the goes wrong. Obviously, archaeologically, the evidence we see for that process is very shaky. Do you not see agricultural evidence of agricultural intensification? Though? You see intensification because a plantation estate looks very different to a tenant farm estate. Yes, but what you normally see is that lots of absenteeism because people like to live in Rome and they don't want to be And they farmers. leave a manager in. So they leave managers and then basically they'll they'll take the land and then they'll rent it out to tenants again. Who then run the slaves? Well, no. No, no, no there's just no slaves. There's, well, there are slaves. There are definitely slave estates. Um, but I think that the prevalence of slaves in rural Italy is very... Um, overstated okay. and that there's still lots and lots of room for uh, for free people both to be farmers and to work on these estates alongside slaves because that's the thing I was going to say was that that process of estatification mm. and the latter fundi sounds very much like the model of plantation existence and the agrarian aristocratic ideal of the antebellum south where you mm. have an aristocracy a non-urban aristocracy who live on plantations mm. in massive estates where everything is done by slaves. And a very low level of absenteeism. And the absenteeism strikes me as closer to the European model of plantation slavery, where you have all, especially the English model, where you don't own a plantation, you own a, a share in a plantation. Mm. And run someone else runs it. Run, someone else runs it in absentee, and then somebody, one of that, they have a manager on the property. Though, which is very common. It's, it's this deep level of alienation between the population who are profiting from the slavery and the slaves themselves, which I guess is something that the Romans wouldn't have understood because their entire society was full of slaves. Even in yes. a way that even the antebellum South was not full of slaves. Was not full of slaves. You know, am yeah. I correct? Understanding that you know, you walk into a Roman town. And you go to the baker, mm. and or like a blacksmith, and one of their assistants could be a slave. Yeah. And you go into a middle class house. Yeah. And they might have a sla- a single slave. Yeah. So slaves participated in basically every aspect of Roman society except for holding public office. Every other aspect. So Basically. And also, the... they technically, while not holding public office, imperial freedmen, which are manumitted slaves from the imperial household, essentially held positions equivalent to public office. Because especially, so, 
under the reign of like uh, I'd say Claudius or um, maybe Nero, imperial freedmen are basically the emperor's friends. They have his ear. So what you get, so uh, for instance, there's a guy called uh, Narcissus, another guy called Pallas. I've been watching I, Claudius, so weirdly, I actually yeah. know who these people are. People don't like them, but people have to suck up to them. So what? the best way to understand this is that um, I think uh, Petronius, who's writing during the, the Neronian period, he wrote a satire called the Satyricon. And this is Catchy. a, yeah, it's, it's actually quite fun. Um, he does. He goes on so many wacky adventures, um, and <laughs> <laughs> wacky adventures in the Satyricon. Exactly. Dinner with Trimalchio is my personal favorite. They go to a freedman called Weekend Trimalchio's at basically, and he basically everything goes wrong. There's a there's a moment where they're having such a great party. The vigilies, the firemen, run inside and chuck a bucket of water on everyone to be like. Calm down. Calm down, guys. We thought there was a, everyone was making so much noise, we thought there was a fire in here. Um, but Petronius, when he... People can't write these things without patrons. Yeah. People to subsidise what they're, what they're doing. It's like Ovid, during the Augustan period, was very... And, and Virgil were good friends with Augustus and people like Mycenas, who was very wealthy. And so they get dedicated to their patrons. Yeah, of course. What you get in certain periods of imperial history is that these works of, um, you know, these, these writings, these works of fiction, poetry, they're not getting dedicated to public officials. They're getting dedicated to freedmen. Ooh. They're getting dedicated to imperial freedmen because they have the ear of the emperor. And so if you want to get close to the emperor, you don't go to the consul. You go to one of his freedmen because that's who he associates with. So even in, in the most extreme case, freed slaves can... And do have massive amounts uh, of influence, but I will just run through all the all the things that they're in. So they're obviously they're on estates. Um, this is slaves. These are slaves, yeah. So they're on estates. Varro, Columella, and Cato, the agronomists. The these are these people that like to write about traditional farming and how to manage. That seems estates. like one of those eBay fixes the Romans have about all oh, traditional farming. They yeah, properly. they love traditional farming, which is why people invest in land because it's a moral thing to do. It's they they believe that. You know, owning your house. Oh, sorry. They believe that farming is moral, and that the height of morality is self-sufficiency, and therefore owning a farm, doing your own farming is very moral. But elite people don't want to do that, so they basically go around it by getting all these slaves to do it, and then they don't have to live. They live. I think there. I said this to you last week. But I think the story of human history can be summed to the one sentence, which is, "No one wants to be a farmer." Basically. No one actually... Everybody thinks it's great. And yep. everybody knows you need to do it. But nobody wants to get up at 4.30 in the morning... No. ...to feed the chickens and look mm. after the barn animals... ...and then spend all day tilling the fields... ...with a back-breaking work... ...and then the sun goes down... ...and then go to bed in full knowledge... ...one bad, one bad week of dry rain... ...dry rain... ...one strong wind... Yeah. ...one flash flood will destroy your work... No one wants to be a farmer. And all of human history can be tied <laughs> to that sentence. People will do anything but farm. People will literally <laughs> enslave millions enslave in a go. Enslave other people. Enslave other people in the hundreds of thousands at great expense and with great immorality and cruelty mm. so they do not have to do it themselves. That sounds about right. No one wants to be a farmer. This imperial- That's it. We've cracked imperialism. Yeah. It just all comes back to it. nobody wants to be a farmer. 
basically. Rural slaves um, made up the majority of slave hunts, I, I would say. And yet we have very, very little evidence for how many there were. Uh, what they did, I mean, obviously, Chloe Meller and, and the agronomists talk about what they do. I think Vara refers to them as refers to slaves as talking tools, which is an interesting Ooh. an interesting metaphor. It's an interesting metaphor, but also it speaks to a much more what's the word? It's brutally honest understanding of how they their roles in the economy in a way that later slave societies simply wouldn't do. Because, but I guess that's pre enlightenment thinking as well. Is that yeah. you don't your understanding of morality is very different. So the idea of acknowledging these peoples are just equipment. Yes. You'll, yeah, you'll never, you'll, you presumably you'll never catch a Roman talking about, oh, he was a happy slave and he enjoyed the work. And uh, I think he, I think sometimes you would uh, get that, but there's very little, pe- people don't, there's very little opportunity for people to, to get to express that kind of view. Because it's because not, because no, it, it would be it, on a, on a tomb and slaves generally don't get tombs. Okay. Um, and then you have urban slaves who work in workshops. So these are the millers, the people who there are cobblers, shoot, you know, um, metal workers, people. They have a trade. Yeah. So for this reason, they're actually they could be educated. They could have skills, um, which could make them actually more marketable and far more yeah sort of i think valuable than than a, the sort of the, the regular layperson i think what uh, was it sort of what hofbaum would call in the 19th century terms a labor aristocracy in the sense that they have a trade they have a skill mm. which gives them an, an educate and a labor-based education yes basically okay so i think in they're the, not just um, fetching and carrying and hauling mm. there so in um <clears throat> i think it's in in one of the legal digests there's an example given of someone that buys a slave for you know five sesterti, trains him in blacksmithing and sells him for twenty, and then what you see is that people value. Well, first you see that people value skills in their workers and that they're willing to pay more money for someone with more skills, which is an important piece of evidence for sort of some economic rationalism going on. Yeah, and then also that people are willing to invest money into slaves rather than keeping them just in like a rural estate where they're just doing backbreaking manual labor, which doesn't require the training or teaching of many new skills that they are willing to invest uh, money and time into that. On that question of education, because one crucial aspect around education in the plantation economy is this fear that if you educate the slaves, you teach them trades, you teach them literature and language, that they will give them the skills and tools to overthrow the system mm. is that something the romans are worried about because um, there are slave uprisings you know beyond spartacus yes. and kirk douglas on the mountain there are um you know there are presumably reg you know semi con semi regular they aren't civil violence always pre- no i don't think so. well i don't know very many examples i obviously spartacus is the most obvious example um and he was a slave he was a gladiator and then his uprising involved uh, many more slaves. But he specifically, he wasn't fighting against slavery, specifically. He wasn't fighting to abolish slavery. He was fighting for better conditions for himself. And also, towards the end, he's not fighting this war to overthrow the system. At one point, he basically requests a boat so he can go east. It's like, 
Well, you you these, you just these want people, these they want out. They don't want. They're, they're, it's not a cause. They're not. It's not a political movement that they're. Part it's not of. comparable with, say, Haiti. Yeah. Okay. So you do get resistance. Resistance is very visible. Sometimes you get like um, I think Cicero talks about, or it's Pliny um, that talks about one senator who was notoriously mean to his slaves, uh, being murdered by his slaves um, while he was in the bath, sort of mm. being like stabbed and things. Uh, and obviously, I think all his slaves got crucified or something for that. But you get these acts of rebellion against really sort of nasty pieces of work. And there is, to some extent, some sympathy with the slaves for basically everyone sort of agreeing, well, he was a, he was a real shit. <laughs> um, so obviously it's terrible and, yeah. and we have to crucify these people. But Well, that, that guy those slaves killed, he's bound to be sorry. Yeah, basically. And the fact that these slaves are in these workshops as well and that they're being given trades specifically speaks to a much lower level of ownership. Oh, well, uh, what, much what lower mean, of control. Of control, but also what I mean by lower level, I mean sort of these aren't just elites. These are sub-elites. So elites don't... They, they, they aren't bakers. Elites... Aren't blacksmiths. They aren't cobblers. They, they aren't, aren't yeah. you know, mining the, engineers. And... The elites, they own a big farm estate and they're in the Senate. That's what they do all day. They don't have a trade. So what you're speaking to is this is a different class of people, a, a lower lower level in the social strata. Rome's highly socially stratified. Yeah. Like, it's massive. So they, we're talking a much lower economic level, of a lot, much lower group. These people have slaves. And these people will buy some slaves. They will train them in their specific, whatever, their, their sort of workshop or bakery or, or something like that. And, you know, the, the work is pretty brutal. I think it's, um, oh no, I'm, I've forgotten the name of, an early Christian Pope. We're going to start here. An Peter. early Christian Pope, not Peter. I'd remember that name. But he um, basically, I think it's during the reign of Diocletian. You know, he's told to retract his Christianity. He refuses. And so he's sentenced to uh, work as a public slave, which is another form of slave. These are slaves owned by the city to be put to work in specific public things. works and stuff and he was a public slave put to work in a bakery milling bread and basically he was thrown in with the donkeys that turned the bread mills uh, and would have to to work that and he died literally like a few months in so that is and that's like a big martyr story but you know he got he got thrown in the in the bakery he had to do this backbreaking work and um, Apuleius, who wrote The Golden Ass, which is about, it's another sort of very weird fantasy book about uh, a guy in Greece sort of doing all sorts. He gets turned into a donkey. That's why it's called The Golden Ass. <sighs> and as a donkey, he gets basically bought by someone and put in a bakery. And he starts milling things. And he talks about how awful it is and what all these slaves have to go through. But not in a sort of, God, how tremendously sad, but in a... Ah, I'm a fucking donkey. I, I, I hope, yeah, I hope our main character makes it out. I'm not going to pass any judgment. I hope the main character makes it out of there. It's oh. like, okay, great. But what strikes me, of course, is that that speaks to the fact that perhaps public slavery resembles most than the element of chattel slavery where people are just worked less. Like, by the 1780s in Haiti, something like 50, 60% of slaves who arrive on the island are dead in like a year yeah. or two. So there is a high attrition rate. It depends where you are. 
And so, what you're doing, presumably. Yes. Yeah. So on rural estates, they estimate that the attrition rate's quite high. Um, but some they, there is some value to it. So I think it's Cato, the elder that writes about what if what if your farm and your estate, what if it's near um, a place that has a lot of malaria? What do you do in that case? And he says, we well, don't want slaves because they'll die very quickly because they live there all the time. They're bound to get malaria and die. So he says, don't use slaves, use free laborers, get them in for a day, do some work and then don't hire them again. <laughs> and that's how- Because they'll, how, get, malaria they'll get malaria and die. <laughs> so there is an extent to which people do care about the attrition rate. But beyond that example, I can't really, really think of any more. Okay. And then obviously urban slaves are going back to where they are. They're just in households. They help out. They do. Um, so I think Hesiod in his works and days, this is like sixth or seventh century BC Greece. Mm-hmm. He talks about, you know, you have to put in the work. You have to tend your farm. And that's the only way good things going to come to you in life. Uh, and he does talk about, you know, what do you want when you get more money? Instead of plowing by hand, get an ox to do some plowing. When you got your ox, you got a bit more money, get a slave. When you got some, get another slave. Stuff like that. Where slaves are used in small households. I think um, there's a, a papyri, a papyrus from Egypt in uh, either the 2nd or 3rd century AD. And it's uh, sort of the remnants of some census data from a bunch of villages. And the average, I think it's there's either one to two or two to three slaves per household. Jeez. On average. That's a lot. Yeah, it's, only... so it's really prevalent. Is what we is what I'm talking it's about. It's prevalent. What's interesting is that that means that the count per capita is really high, but it's also re- seems reasonably evenly spread through civil society. Yes, that's this is like the ultimate slave society. Yeah. It is everywhere, and actually, Where... so we, to to go back to numbers very briefly, obviously we can't know how many slaves there were, but there has been some work done based mainly on the uh, on the conquest. Because people write about conquest and they give you some numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they estimate that the the ratio of enslaved to free in Italy in about the first century BC was about three to one. So three free people to every slave. That is still so much lower than the Caribbean and the Plantation Americas. The, the that, level that, to yeah. which the white population of someone like Haiti or Jamaica... It's outnumbered by the slave population. It's immense. It's mm. huge. It's you know, it's five five slaves to one free. You know, some places higher as eight wow. or nine or ten. And the other thing, of course, is that that is completely limited to the elite. The poor, you know, in in Haiti, for example, the, the, there is this. There's a, there are the the big whites, mm-hmm. the small whites, and the free coloreds. Yeah, the big and the big whites. Own all the slaves, basically. Yeah. And the free coloreds also own a lot of the slaves. Mm-hmm. But the poor whites don't. Yeah. And part of the resentment the poor whites have with the white elites is that they have, the white elites are happy to work with the free colored things because they're both own slaves. Yeah. And the poor whites are all the people who came to the Caribbean in search of riches and just failed. Yeah. And they have no relationship with slaves beyond basically being allowed to kill one if they feel like it. Mm. And that's that's the interesting part, of course, is that even in the antebellum South, which is by the eighteen forties, fifties, trying to model itself off of the Roman world, a, a baker is not going to own a slave. 
it's, it is they just are the, the, yeah the lower middle the different. the professional or well, the the trade classes tradesmen's classes are completely alienated from slave culture. Mm. Whereas this is they are integrated integrated, which I think also leads into the sort of thing I wanted to address at the end, which is this question of freedom. Yeah, which is that one thing that strikes me about the Roman society is that freedom of slaves seems much more common. Yes, they tried to do some work on what what. The, the sort of the likelihood of being manumitted yeah and it's quite problematic because it's based on um sort of data from a columbarium where it's very hard to determine when people were put in the columbarium you know what their actual legal status is uh and, and things like that just for the listeners what is a columbarium oh a columbarium is a an it's a tomb it's a type of roman tomb that emerged during the augustan period and instead of so normally, uh, pre pre Augustan, the big tomb to have is a sort of a box tomb or a chamber tomb. And these are like it's an above ground structure um, where you would either inter your body, or you would when cremation became a big deal in like around let's say the first century BC, you put your you cr- put your cremated remains in a little urn, put them in the box tomb, build the tomb sort of on a road. And then oh, yeah, you can put, on... put a little inscription on it being like, that's me. This is for people that can afford it, obviously. Yeah, because they're on the roadside in that town, aren't they? Yeah. So that you can, uh, people can walk by, see your tomb and be like, oh, all right. In the Augustan period, that changes. The box tomb basically goes away. There are lots of laws against excess luxury. And also it's assumed that big monumental tombs and very visible tombs are the are reserved for the, the imperial family. And they sort of seem a bit too Republican as well. A bit too yeah. yeah. So you get some, some uh, exceptions like the Pyramid of Cestius and the uh, the, the big mausoleum of uh, Caecilia Metella. Um, but those are really big exceptions. Um, so where, where do people's burials go? Well, they go underground in these uh, tombs called columbariums. Um, and columbariums, basically, they, they, they are up to, you know, they can be in excess of 100 niches. And they are sort of semicircular niche with two little deposit pots, which means that every niche can fit two people. And then you get a little plaque that you can put on the front to give your name and uh, maybe your legal status, your job, your uh, who dedicated it, who's your wife, that kind of stuff. And these became very popular. There are some really humongous ones. They're great. You should look up photos of um, the the three columbaria at uh, Vigna Codini. They are amazing mm-hmm. um but then eventually it sort of moved back above ground towards the middle of the first century ad and they became sort of family tombs again where they're above ground people can walk past and see your name on the front and when you walk inside they'll be divided into two little sections there'll be a little internal bit an external bit for putting other people yeah bob's your uncle yeah so that's what a common bar in it so I'd be very skeptical of many manumission rates. A lot of the time, they, it's sort of like by the age of 30, um, you know, one in five would be something like that. That or, is or, still higher. And then it gets more and more likely as you go, as you get older, basically. Whereas most slaves are born into, uh, if they're not born to slavery, they will die as a slave. They will die as a slave. Yeah, plantation economy, and almost all those born into slavery die as slaves as well. There's no manumission is really low. Yeah, and 
to be fair, that the manumission in the Roman world is skewed. Because we're looking at these columbaria, we are looking primarily at domestic slaves. We're looking at slaves who lived in a household and worked in a household and had a strong you know, personal connection to the person that enslaved them. Uh, so for that reason, they're probably more likely to be manumitted. I mean, that is a commonality there. Yes. Because you look and, at famous, you look at yeah. free, certain free persons, um, they tend to be household staff. They tend yeah. to be foot, footmen or tradesmen or overseers or some people who have relation, working relationships with the masters. I think possibly it is that the, the significantly higher enslaved population and the vital alienative elements of race and racial theory that are vital to the Western plantation economy mm. prevent manumission in a way that the Romans don't really have as a barrier. Yes, I think that's right. And also, Columbarium basically replaces a box tomb where it lines the road into and out of a, an urban settlement. Yeah. Now, uh, if you, I think I said I said earlier that rural slaves are the majority of slaves. Mm. But there are no rural columbarium. So when you're looking in a columbarium and you're that's your data that's your data, you're looking primarily at, at, at an already in a minority group. Urban slaves. Which is urban slaves. And so what you have to bear in mind is that a lot of slaves were rural slaves. And rural slaves, we don't have much evidence of them being manumitted. And that if you're a rural slave, it's highly likely that you are worked until you die and you don't get to be free and you don't get to participate in uh, what I'm going to talk about now, which is manumission. Yeah, so this, this I mean, it's, this question of being freed as a slave seems to be a very common Roman concept, mm. common enough that they legislate around it, whereas the plantation societies are desperate to maintain that difference between free and slave along racial lines as much as possible. Yes. So I think the Romans saw some, an obvious benefit in allowing not only manumission, but that manumission brought with it integration into, back into society and to being, and being given personhood. Social rebirth, perhaps. Yes. To sort of put off the social death bits. And what that means in practice is that um, states could be manumitted in a, in a number of different ways. And slaves allowed their slaves to collect what's called a uh, a peculium, and a and a peculium is essentially a little bit of money. So they can they can earn a tiny bit of money that they can then spend on their personal, you know, whatever effects uh, they mm -hmm. need. But they could also save up enough peculium uh, and buy their freedom. Yeah, I mean, but also peculium because in itself cost yeah. money. Peculium in itself implies a certain level of economic independence of slavery in the sense yes. that they are buying their own clothes and their own food. And, and that that is mainly uh because it's mainly it's mainly because Roman slaves were so integrated into Roman society that they that it is unavoidable that they are being given very important positions. So many households have a chief sort of slaves that handles the finances of the household. They have some of these really big Households. This is this we can reconstruct from a, a columbarium. So a, a columbarium, they'll give their jobs when they're slaves and they're being buried. So you get um, people who are, you know, tanners. You get sort of um, 
sort of cubiculares, which are sort of attendants in bedrooms, uh, people that hold water, people that uh, help you get dressed in the morning. The entire servile class is enslaved. You mm. very rarely get servants who are free, basically. Yes, this, that's absolutely the case in, in the domestic sphere. And when they are freed, they, they it's not like, well, they do leave the household. That's important. In a very, in a legal sense, a new legal household has been created. Because instead of being a non-person, being property, you if it's a male slave, they become a paterfamilias in their own right. Which is to say, they become the head of their own family. But they basically, they, they, they move from personhood, unpersonhood rather, into a familia, which is the... They have a social network and connection. It is the, yeah, the Roman legal unit, basically, okay. a familia. And when they're part of the familia, they can, you know, own property outright. They can write a will. They can do all sorts, which is, um, you know, they can participate in wider society. But it's only sort of in a legal sense, because before they uh, were freed, they could do a lot of those things because it's practical for them to do that. Because But now they have legal rights to perfection. But now they have the, the legal rights. It's kind of similar with, um, this is why speaking legalistically isn't always helpful. So because Roman women, legally speaking, have very few rights. They can't write their own will. They can't dispense with their own property. Even if their husband dies and all their other male family members have died and it's just them, they are technically assigned a, a minder, a male minder, that then has to sign off on all her decisions. But in in practice, what she could do is, if she owns a slave, she can free a slave, of, create, say, this slave is my minder, but the slave is still indebted to her. And that manumission creates all these really odd and interesting social relations. So when someone frees a slave, the slave is not, in a sense, completely free. He is still a dependent. He's yeah, he's, a social, he's an economic dependent. He's got nowhere yeah. else to go. Well, even if he did have somewhere else to go, he couldn't go there. Because he owes what is called operai. Operai are these labours and services that he still owes to his, in, to his former enslaver. Uh, and then he has to participate in the annoying Roman traditions like the salutatio, where every morning... All your, um, basically all your clients would come around to your house in the morning and say, good morning. And you'd have to go, thank you. Good morning. That sounds like the most annoying. Uh, you could write a and comedy sketch. You could write a comedy just about that. Just, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And then the order they all say good morning in is very important. And things like that. <laughs> but all your freedmen come and say good morning in the morning because they are your clients and you are their patron. And that's a very important that's social relationship. fucked all of them off. There is, it is true. Marshall, I think, he writes very begrudgingly about the salutatio and he says that he hates the fact that his patron lives up this massive hill. <laughs> and that every morning he has to get up and walk Look up, up this hill. Probably the wrong direction from work yeah, as well. Oh, fuck it hell. I'm late, I'm late, I'm late to work. I've got to walk up the hill and go, hi, if he's having breakfast, he's going to make me wait. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's, it's stuff like that. It's sort of ridiculous things that are, are very important. But Friedman are they, they? There is definitely a sense in which they are um, integrated into the Roman world. So, so they get their legal status as part of a familia. They 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 are participating in the legal realm. Yeah. They are also permitted to do many more things. They can get married. So while they're slaves, there's a uh, a thing called um, 
This is basically the equivalent of a common law marriage. No, it's something called contubernia. Contubernia is an informal relationship that has to be approved yeah. by the enslaver. Uh, and it's sort of like an informal marriage between two slaves. Uh, but obviously any offspring that that union produces are the property of the master. And so being freed from slavery, you can get legally married. And getting legally married is very important if you want to display yourself as a Roman. Because if you are legally married, then you can claim various Roman virtues, like uh, committias, um, and virtus, and, and sort of chastity, and f- fidelity, and, and these important Roman moral uh, qualities um, that these free people want to display to emphasise their departure um, from slavery. And I think it is, it's interesting, and it, and it goes to show just how integrated um, these enslaved people were uh, once they've been freed, how much they wanted to integrate into regular Roman society. Um, and I'm going to link it back to these tombs I was looking at in, at the BSR. Mm. Because what these show are these essentially, um, they're like cutouts of the ideal Roman family. There's an old man, there's a, uh, a very modest looking woman who has um, on her stoa, uh, she's got it pulled up over her head in a very sort of virtuous pious way they're emphasizing these important qualities you know the husband he's got his toga on because he's a roman citizen he's been given roman citizenship uh and he's participating in public life properly uh and then sometimes they'll display a a child or a son always a son rather um because a son is not only is the son of a freedman freeborn he is the heir to the family so we are a legal family. Our family has an heir. And what's more, this heir is a freeborn Roman citizen and he is he, he has the same rights as everyone else. And that's what they want that's to the emphasis. emphasis. On, yeah. Because they want to integrate themselves into um obviously it gets derided yeah. by elites. Elites make fun of freed people and say, Look at a, look at you pretending to be us. But they have that attitude to the nouveau rich yeah. all the time. That's that's what Roman elites do, but that kind of social, that kind of political, not quite social mobility, political mobility is common. Yes. Okay. Sort of, we could keep yeah. going and going and going, but it's you know, there's this. I'm sure we'll come back. Actually, I'd like to go back and talk just about the free men of Rome. Actually, at some point, because it's such an interesting concept, and I think we're gonna round off here just below the hour. Yep. So, do you want to talk about the book of choice today? Yes, yeah, so my book of choice today is another Adrian Goldsworthy book. I oh, think hey. I'm thinking am I batting three or two? It I might, think be, it might two. be two. It's it's many. Uh, but I've got here uh, in the name of Rome, uh, the men who won the Roman Empire, and it is a um, it's quite it's slightly different from normal Adrian Goldsworthy books. Normally, he does sort of uh, biographies and profiles of various uh, ancient figures. Um, it is the third one. I've just realised. Yeah, it is like, the third one. And this is much more sort of military focused. So it's based on the campaigns of these various um, Romans. It starts off in the very early Republic and it carries right the way through into the uh, the Imperial period. It, it, it shows advances and changes in uh, warfare, tactics uh, and all sorts. But also these are just tremendously interesting people, I think. Uh, shout out to Quintus Sertorius. He's my favourite. Mm. Big Spaniard. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. 
My book of choice is Another Day of Life by Rizyard Kapusinski, which is a account of his experiences in Angola at the absolute end of Portuguese rule. So it is the absolute end of empire, mm. the complete nadir of colonialism and sort of the apocalyptic landscape of post-colonial Luganda, Luanda, and then the Angolans fighting off the South Africans and the Angolan civil war. And it's, mm. it's an eerily beautiful description of just what the end of empire looks like mm. and how just end, uh, just end of, it's both end of the world and birth of a new world. Yeah. At the same time. And it's, it's that. Yeah, and it, I love it. It's a really nice short book and it's really a lovely translation but yeah, I recommend Another Day of Life for just some really good journalistic prowls. And, you know, it's quite poetic in places. Excellent. But yeah, um, so yeah, that was our first um, slavery episode. I'm sure we'll have more to come in between other content. Um, please follow us at Pack. What are we at? Podcast Packs on Podcast Twitter. Podcast Packs on Twitter. Um, please find us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Give us nice, good reviews. Recommend us to your friends. Um, come come meet us in public again meet us in public again shout out to the person who listens to this podcast now who met me at work that was very nice it was very exciting see that can't happen with me because I'm unemployed <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, until next time thank you all for listening thank you very much bye now goodbye <laughs>